Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to Melbourne Park, where you find myself, Catherine Rittiger, David Law, Matt Roberts, on the Australian Open's equivalent of... Henman Hill on a fine Melbourne evening on day 13 of the Australian Open. Happy Australia Day to those who celebrate. It is certainly an Australia Day that Yannick Sinner and Novak Djokovic will not forget. Yannick Sinner has reached his maiden Grand Slam final. Novak Djokovic has lost in an Australian Open semi-final for the first time in his career. 6-1, 6-2, 6-7, 6-3 for Yannick Sinner over the top seed. Matt, there was one match that you wanted to see at this Australian Open men's tournament. You've seen it. You now know what it all means. Tell us your wisdom. Absolutely, yeah. I, I wanted to see it because I wanted to find out if, if Yannick Sinner could, could bring his best tennis against Novak Djokovic on the Grand Slam stage. And we got an emphatic yes to that question. Sinner was awesome today. Nothing about what he did today actually surprised me, but I still think it's worthy of immense praise because it's like the first time we've seen him do that against Djokovic in a Grand Slam. But it was not the match that I was expecting whatsoever because, well, in the words of Novak Djokovic, it's one of the worst Grand Slam matches that he's ever played and it's certainly the worst that I've seen live. I've not been in the stadium and seen Novak Djokovic play like that before. It was absolutely shocking and I think our job, I think everyone's job is to try and work out how much of that was caused by Yannick Sinner, how much of that was caused just by Novak Djokovic having an off day and you know maybe what it means for the future but uh, yeah like absolutely fascinating and I'm so glad that we've seen that match and and had that sort of moment I suppose. Worst you've ever seen Novak Djokovic play David? It's the worst I've ever seen him play since he became the player that we know him to be a real champion one of the the big three duking it out with sort of double digit grand slams probably since he was injured the the period of yeah. you know you think back to when he, he lost to Hyun Chung here what, what we're going back eight years something like that now um match like that when he but he wasn't he wasn't in that sort of form. He hadn't had that sort of dominance for a while because of the injury. He'd had it previous to that. This isn't a shock in that it's Yannick Sinner who's done it. It's, it is the manner of, of it that is the, the, the shocking thing. He won three games in the first two sets. I mean, it was a little bit like Alcaraz the other night um, and actually a very similar scoreline, I suppose. Um, but it was just... It did, I didn't expect it because the first point of the match, he played this amazing sliding front-on mm. shots, and I thought, okay, well, Sinner's just given him everything he's got, and he's just still won the point, and then he lost the next six. And, and that intersection of where it's because of the opponent's excellence and what he's doing to you, and when it's you not being able to respond, I never quite know where that, that intersection is, but... Both factors were there because Sinner was fantastic. Uh, and and the, the, whilst I'm not shocked either, 
I'm really impressed that he transferred his his game from late last year onto the Grand Slam stage and only had the one brief wobble and then sort of got himself together and then head down and off he went again. It was amazing. What I found just as shocking, if not even slightly more so than as as his his terrible performance, Djokovic, in the opening two sets, um, and well, and for for much of the the third set as well, um, was that every time he found his game and he found his level and he found his intensity, and he thought, okay, that's it, the the switch is flicked, he couldn't keep it. Yeah, that I found truly shocking because. There were moments when that happened, but it was so fleeting. I turned to Matt at the start of, the, I think, two games in to the second set just before he got broken, and I said, OK, this is this is a proper match now. And he instantly goes and plays an absolutely horrible service game to be broken by Sinner, and I just... I don't think I've ever seen that before. There was a, there was a moment, I think, Djokovic serving 2-4 in the second set, and he called upon the crowd in that game and they responded and it was as rousing an ovation as as you'll ever see it felt like almost like that moment when he um he cried in the US Open final to against Daniil Medvedev you know like desperation i need you here and boy did they respond it was a real goosebump moment inside the stadium and i was so sure it would become a different match from that point onwards because of everything that we've seen from Novak Djokovic over the years and and it, it wasn't. I know he, he won the third set and in, incredible effort from him to make it any kind of a match at all. But I, I, I can't get over that, really, that Djokovic didn't have that power today to bend the match to his will. Mm. Yeah, because if, because after he'd won that third set, you think, OK, like he's not playing well, but he's found a way to win a set. He's... He's won a tiebreak, as he always seems to do. And then he plays a shocking game to lose serve in the fourth set. Like, I think he was 40-love up in it. He was. And he certainly lost lost it with four unforced errors on the last four points. One of them was a double fault. It, it was just like, as exactly as you said, he, he'd, found a, he'd found a bit of spark in that third set tiebreak. And then it just vanished again in the fourth set. It was absolutely shocking. The most shocking aspect for me is this is the first time Novak Djokovic has played a completed match at a Grand Slam and not created a break point. Not one. This was over three hours, and he didn't create one break point. He is the, he is the best returner in, in the sport's history, and he didn't create a break point. That has never happened before. And Yannick Sinner was, was serving really well, he was, but he was serving under 60% first serves. It wasn't like it was an Alexander Zverev the other night against Alcaraz, 85%. There were chances for Djokovic, and he just was completely incapable of, of taking them in a way that I've never seen from him before. And, you know, he didn't have his backhand the whole match. There were one or two occasions where he, he opened up and hit some decent forehands, but generally that shot wasn't great for him either. His serve looked vulnerable. Sinner was was attacking it, applying pressure. He was he was brilliant at all that, but like all aspects of Djokovic's game were just so off. And 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 he's framed it in his press conference as, you know, that's kind of been the story of his tournament. He said he hasn't played well all tournament. He hasn't played his best tennis here in Australia. I guess I just thought that you know we've seen him not play his best through the first five rounds, and then he turns it on in in the semi-finals and you and you feel a fool for ever doubting that he wouldn't win the grand slam. I mean how many how many times have we seen that? And he it, today it just it just didn't happen and as we said I think it's a combination of of Djokovic and also Sinner causing it to some degree, you know, the wins he had over Djokovic end of last season, he came into this confident and he was relentless with his hitting and I think Djokovic knew he had to be at his best and if he didn't have his level he perhaps was you know a little worried that he was never going to be able to find his best and and he looked he looked kind of worried and blank a little bit he never he never picked out someone in the crowd or he never started ranting with his box it was he was a bit flat and listless and yeah it was I'm, I'm still shook by the whole thing if that's not obvious in my ranting here David John Wertheim 
tweeted um, midway through the the fourth set, I think it was, or maybe it was in the third, certainly at a point where Djokovic looked, looked on his way out of the tournament. He said, ask ageing athletes and they'll tell you the first thing to go is not the arms or the legs, but the consistency. You, you, you've, sorry to make you sound older than us, but you've seen more ageing athletes yeah, than, uh, than we have. You've seen uh, more generations come and peak and wane and we're always trying to pick when is the moment for Novak Djokovic and I keep saying we might not well we we won't know for sure until until we're reflecting on it from the future but it does feel like this might be it yeah it's 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 interesting because I saw that tweet as well and I thought oh that feels like a bit of an overreaction to me um the first I often think of aging athletes champions losing their nerve more than more than their consistency. I'm going to give some thought to what John said because I have such great respect for his view, and he's been in the sport as long as I have, uh, observing it. What I feel generally is, look, you've got a heck of a lot of very recent data of him being the best tennis player in the world. He dominated last year, uh, aside from one tournament where he lost to Alcaraz. Um, so, to me, that feels premature. But at the same time, Sinner is going to get better as a direct result of this match. He got better as a direct result of those wins he had at the end of last year. He is able to do something to Djokovic that Djokovic has done to everybody else for years. It's not like what Alcaraz does. Alcaraz is is razzle-dazzle. Sinner, Djokovic is you. He, He keeps you in rallies that you don't want to be in. He ties you up in knots and asks you those questions the same way as Djokovic does to everybody else and Djokovic just didn't have the answers and he would have to be on on his game to the top level to, to have those answers and I, I kind of feel like one of the questions is how does he rebound from this because the this is the this is his home tournament this is the one he always won and now I don't know how how up for it is he going to be in the spring and then there's the clay there's a lot to look forward to the Olympics particularly it might help that for instance you know focus in the mind but there's definitely question marks I don't feel as strongly as John suggested there but he, he was asked a very direct question about aging and whether this was age catching up with him at the at the very end of the English portion of his press conference I think it was an Australian journalist not not a tennis beat journalist and I, I thought wow that's bold mate <laughs> um, and I was I was wincing for him thinking how's this going to go and actually he got an incredibly direct answer from Djokovic it was it, it was it was a great Djokovic press conference actually he was very revealing um, what did you make of that answer Matt I'm really wary of sort of not trying to read too much into things but he said he was asked is this age catching up with you and he goes I hope not but I don't know and he, he said time will tell didn't mm. he and almost as though he's having the same thoughts that we're having like it's, it's tough to tell when you're in the moment whether whether that is everything changing or whether it's just a one-off but I do think if we look big picture now the last four events that Novak Djokovic really wanted to win Wimbledon, the US Open the Davis Cup and the Australian Open he hasn't won three of them and he's lost to Alcaraz and Sinner and, and I, I do think that those two at their absolute best now can beat Djokovic they've shown that I mean that, that isn't a controversial statement but and and that could could be age, you know. And I, I know Djokovic is still the he still feels like the guy to beat. He does. But whether it's his nerve or whether it's his consistency or whether it's his legs, you, you are bound to lose something. And he has done an incredible job of making up for whatever he's lost in other areas. And I don't think he's lost his nerve because I mean, look at the way he won that tiebreak today. That was. Extraordinary. That was Djokovic using his aura and using all of his all of his experience to just grab something from this match where he was being he was being destroyed out there. Let's be honest, it wasn't it wasn't a close match. But the other Djokovic trait is that ability to bounce back, and his sort of his toughest defeat last year was was Wimbledon, wasn't it? And he then won Cincinnati and won the U.S. Open. 
And I think David's right. It's, it's going to be a period now where nothing really matters for Djokovic now until May. And then everything matters for a, for a, for a stretch. Then life comes at you fast. Really fast. And I think it's going to be almost impossible for anyone to dominate that period of the season. And I think Djokovic is going to be right there. This summer, you mean, from May onwards? Yeah. Just because of the sequencing of... The sequencing, the changing of surfaces, four events in such a quick time. Like, I would probably still bat Djokovic to win one of those four over the summer. You know, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, the Olympics, or the US Open. But I think what this does is put it in perspective that, you know, at the start of the season, we might have been talking about calendar slam or golden slam like obviously that's not possible anymore because he's lost here but I don't think he can accumulate in quite the same way because these guys are they're too good now Alcaraz and Sinner and probably throw Medvedev in there as well but I don't expect this to be like the end but I do think it's a sign that dominating and winning everything is just going to be so hard for him at, at this stage in his career with these guys chasing him. I keep thinking about what Pam said on last night's podcast about Djokovic's aura just just wearing off a little bit because one of the things I found so impressive about Sinner today, obviously apart from his tennis and the way he Djokovic described it is giving the ball a slap, didn't he? he really, I, I knew he was going to give the ball a slap uh, and boy did he do that um, it was just the way that he played the opponent and not the reputation that's so difficult to do and it, he has made it easier for others in his wake to do that in the future this this one defeat in a semi-final to a great player an almost certain future Grand Slam champion that does not an aura destruction make but it's 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 erosion isn't it? it it's it it takes years to build up and it's gone like that i think that's fascinating because when i think back to pete sampras who's the the player i always associate with dominance because of of what he was able to do back in the the 2000s uh, and the 90s as well i mean he there were moments where you just start to realize he's starting to deteriorate and you could see the look in players' eyes and, and that little morsel of hope that Sinner has given everybody because it's here and because it means everything to Djokovic and he couldn't get it done it does help them, I think, go onto the court against him. I think a lot of them just don't have what Sinner has so th- there's a question mark how far that will get them but I think definitely p- players will go in with more hope against him in the future and, and the father time element is going to come. Now in the future, we will look back on this match and and have a view then as to was that the moment and we don 't know now but but we 'll know in the future and and I, I do think it 's really exciting that sinner has has made this much of his career this quickly that he 's made these strides you know it's it 's one of the one of the really impressive accelerations in a career that we 've had and it it wasn't the reaction and the post-match interview with Jim Courier that you would normally expect from a first-time Grand Slam finalist in their moment of victory over a, a, a ten-time and reigning champion, was it? It was incredibly level-headed. That helps from, him, I think. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Look, it wasn't a it wasn't a headline-grabbing interview, but he, you know, he, his attitude is great one more to go right he's he talked about the process in the interview it's not sexy talking about the process but it's what you got to do isn't it this isn't this isn't the summit of the mountain uh, you know i used the word unprofessional to describe carlos Alcaraz's performance the other day and I, I got some criticism for that i understand it i mean maybe it's a bit harsh i certainly felt it was un- indisciplined and not uh, tactically astute and sensible um Sinner today was the total opposite of that. The absolute contrast. He came out with a plan. He came out from ball one just prepared to to dig in. And that's that's the minimum, really, I think. What was his plan? If you had to describe Sinner's game plan today, other than 
other than hope he, the ball, pl- hope, he plays, hope his opponent plays terribly and finding that that turns out to be the case. How would we describe the Sinner game plan against Djokovic and can others do it? I don't, I'd, I'd be very interested to know from a coach or a, pl- or a, some, or a, a pundit who's played whether, the, whether there was a clear tactic of where you target. I didn't sense one as such. For me, it was more about let me play my game and dig in and get my feet under me and trust my movement, my shots out wide, go toe-to-toe. Take him on, toe-to-toe, see if I've got it. Because I think Sinner backs himself toe-to-toe. And the, the interesting elements were, w- once Djokovic was losing that battle, did he have the answers in another way? Go into the net, throw in, in off-pace balls, little drop shots, etc.? tried one or two did it, would he get the serve working well enough to get him into a tie break and win three tie breaks these were all possibilities and and I, and I wrote a couple when I was writing notes during this match I, I remember thinking saying Djokovic is starting to feel it now Sinner needs his serve and you know just to get himself out of trouble when when the pressure came and um, and he did it and and uh I just couldn't have been more impressed. I mean, especially when he had that wobble in the third set tiebreak. I don't know about you. I thought, I'm not sure. I'm not sure now. If uh, it, because we've seen him lose for, to the same guy from two sets to love it, it was a colossal mental effort from yeah. Sinner in the fourth set. I know he was helped along by an, a, a, a shonky service game from Novak Djokovic. But um, that I, I'm not sure there's any other players that he'd have thrown that shonky service game in again you know it's that it's that tussle of I'm, I'm just I'm just distracted by uh, the big screen in front of us who is showing showing a shot of Novak Djokovic bag on his back trudging towards the car in the car park exiting exiting Melbourne Park it's and, it's wow and, and and that was an extraordinary moment wasn't it when mm. Novak Djokovic left the court at the end of the match Exactly as you described earlier, David, the only times we've seen him lose at the Australian Open was when actually he probably came in out of form or a little bit injured or not quite right, and he lost early to Hyung Chung or I know Dennis Istomin, you know, he, he wasn't expected to lose early, but he wasn't quite right. Once he's got to the business end of the tournament, he's never lost here. So I think that's why it was sort of so shocking to, to see him depart on such a big stage like that and... Um, yeah, just in terms of Sinner's like game plan and, and game style, like I was really shocked and incredibly impressed at the number of times where it felt like Sinner was doing to Djokovic's serve what Djokovic does to everyone else's serve. Like number of times he was getting the return and putting it back on Djokovic's toes, and Djokovic wasn't able to then hit freely in the rally. And once they're in a rally, Sinner's got the greater weight of shot and he can just keep applying this pressure um, I've always thought unless you stand with Rinka you need a bit of variety to beat Djokovic you, you need a slice you need to come forward you need to push him off the court and Sinner's developed that but largely it felt like he was just, just out gunning him mm. and that's what I was so impressed by and, that, and the control of it it was, it was never going for too much it was always contained he was brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah I found that interesting too because I I feel like so much of the dialogue about Yannick Sinner's development over the past 18 months two years has been adding more variety adding the 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 drop shot to sort of match Alcaraz adding the net game you know adding the Alcarazy type things to his game and he has he has done those things but the biggest victory of his career actually wasn't about any of those things and, and I, I've always been a little bit cynical about that because I just don't think he is that sort of player I think he, I think he needs to have some of it to, to not be utterly predictable go to the net be prepared to finish off points throw, throw a drop shot in now and again but you're not Carlos Alcaraz you never will but you don't have that touch but my word toe to toe I remember being really excited ahead of that Wimbledon match they played this year him and him and uh, Djokovic because I thought he can go toe to toe with him it would be interesting and he really couldn't he, could, he couldn't move on the grass well enough to go toe to toe reliably forearm was breaking down with this under his feet and with all the, the reps he's had and the successes he's had he was so self-assured and confident it was quite interesting how in the first couple of sets 
there weren't that many really long rallies. And then in the third set, Djokovic managed to extend the rallies a bit, and he actually started really winning them. He dominated the long rallies in the third set, Djokovic. And that might just be a little element where Djokovic has lost something. Like, a few years ago, I think he would have been able to play long rallies with Yannick Sinner the entire match and back himself. But I don't think he was backing himself in the first two sets to win long rallies against him. He was hitting, he was trying to hit out and making errors really early in rallies. And I think he realised, OK, I need to stop doing that. But I, I don't know whether he thought, I can't go five sets playing really long rallies with Yannick Sinner because I have not got that sort of mileage in me anymore. And, you know, he's, as I said, he's found ways to make up for that. But he couldn't tonight because cause Yannick Sinner was, was so good. We don't know who Sinner will face in the final. You will find out if you don't already know in part two of the show. Daniel Medvedev and Alexander Zverev are just getting underway on the Rod Laver Arena. We're going to go and watch that and some of us commentate on it in just uh, just a few moments' time. But generally speaking, if someone's going into a Grand Slam final as a first-time finalist and the other person isn't, which will be the case here regardless of who Sinner faces the first time finalist will be the underdog just because of how valuable experience is could you make the case that Sinner is going to be the favourite regardless of the opposition it's a, it's a great question because on paper I would probably I'd probably say no because he has a losing record against both players but it doesn't feel like that to me he's just beaten Novak Djokovic and he's done it three times in the last couple of months I think he is probably the favourite for me regardless now yeah that's it he doesn't he doesn't have a losing record against them as as post puke sinner and <laughs> as as Henry Breadstick on on Twitter said today as post fart sinner because that that was apparently what was going on with his stomach the <laughs> the other day against Rublev he just just needed to let out some gas <laughs> Not an abdominal strain, <laughs> just a bit of he, he is a, he's a he's new a, man. He's a better out than in kind of guy. <laughs> has has post in a loss to anyone? Yes, Djokovic at the ATP Finals. Is that it? He's certainly got a winning head-to-head against everybody on tour, post Sinner. Add him into the rankings. Give him his own. <laughs> give him his own bio. One. <laughs> uh, right. Well, I mean. We'd probably find out who Sinner's opponent is going to be in the final before we proceed with talking about it. Before we come back with part two, I'm going to tell you about On Location, the premium hospitality and experience provider. Guys, I feel like your gusto is waning. (laughs) Sorry. We've got finals weekend to come. I want more. Okay, we'll work on it. We are thrilled to be sponsored by On Location, the premium hospitality and experience provider throughout this Australian Open and as I've been telling you, On Location has ticket hospitality travel packages available for pretty much any tennis tournament that's worth going to. By that, I mean Indian Wells, where you have the chance to see Pam. Uh, <laughs> not part of the package, but, you know, Pam's very friendly. If you see her, do say hello. Uh, Miami Open, not sure if Pam's going to be there. Possible Pam in Miami. Madrid, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, the US Open, Labour Cup. Pam will be at lots of those, as will we. And we have a 10% discount for Tennis Podcast listeners on 2024 Roland Garros official VIP ticket packages courtesy of Steve Fergal's International Tennis Tours. Now, of course, those packages include incredible tickets on Philippe Chatrier, but they also include uh, cocktails, hors d'oeuvres, and all-around general uh, refined and contemporary times in La Mezzanine at L'Orangerie. Uh, my gusto isn't waning, guys. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, I'll make up for you. Uh, you can also upgrade to premium access at Club de Loge Lounge, which sounds sexy and lovely Uh, so to buy an official VIP ticket package to Roland Garros and take advantage of that 10% discount code just go to toursfortennis.com forward slash podcast and use the discount code CLAYSEASON at checkout C-L-A-Y-S-E-A-S-O-N and remember we also have a 5% discount code available for all on location tennis events besides the Olympics so all of those that I mentioned above Indian Wells Miami Madrid Wimbledon US Open Labour Cup that is exclusively for friends of the pod so there are already myriad reasons to be friends of the pod not least supporting us in being here and 
being able to sit on this lovely hill and talk about tennis Mm -hmm. um and you also get a five percent discount code for all of those on location events and packages so if you want to become a friend the link to do so is in our show notes as always terms and conditions apply we're going to go watch some more tennis and we'll be back with part two One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, here we are, six and a half hours later, back at Tennis Podcast Towers, having just watched Daniel Medvedev come from two sets to love down to beat Alexander Zverev and reach a third Australian Open final, a sixth Grand Slam final overall. And of course, we've also attended the accompanying press conferences, which did not disappoint, or certainly Daniel Medvedev's did not disappoint what a day david yeah that and and it went on a bit of a roller coaster ride for us didn't it i mean you know medvedev was all over the place at the start of that match i mean in fact i don't think he's been that good all tournament and and i think it's a great credit to him that he's actually figured out a way to get to the final when he's not been playing close to his best maybe until the comeback you know, uh, he was he he was very interesting about that. I felt afterwards how he he sort of almost the moment of acceptance that that it's not there and I haven't got any energy and suddenly start to loosen up and play. But I thought he was done. I thought he was done when he was two sets to love down. It was uh, quite something that comeback. Yeah, I mean he looked done, didn't he? But that is as as we know that's. That's when Medvedev is sometimes at his at his most dangerous. His, you know, we always say there's a there's a correlation between how much of a state he looks and and how great his his tennis can be. And I thought it was really interesting the way he spoke about how he feels like he's he's got better, mentally stronger through this tournament, but just because he's done things he didn't think he was capable of doing. Right back to the Rusevori match in, in the second round and that incredibly late finish. He's, it really, you know, I know we talked about it in a very serious way at the time, but it does really feel like he has been playing a bit of catch-up ever since that match because he's, he's been physically declining in all of his matches sort of since then and he's had to, he's had to manage that. And, um, you know, then he had the five-setter against Hercatch and then today 
he just understands his assignment when he's playing Alexander Zverev. Like for him, it is a little bit personal and he is going to do absolutely everything he can to beat Zverev. I mean, he said in the press conference, we are not friends. And he's now won, I think, nine of their last 12 matches. Uh, he's won six of their eight deciding sets. Like he, He's got the upper hand. And as that match went on, once he found a way to get back into it, I think he, I think he knew he had the upper hand in it. And it, it sort of galvanized him. And oh, it was, it was an incredible comeback. At the same time as Zverev, particularly in that final set, lost the plot and his his game, which had been really good this tournament and particularly against Alcaraz and the start of the match today, I mean, it fell to pieces at the end there. His, his forehand was all over the place, volleys in the net and Medvedev just sails on to the final. Uh, and also, when you say he, he he'll do whatever it takes, including some... Underhand stuff. I mean, he he was doing doing the Monte Carlo stuff again. Maybe not as as obvious as kicking that post down the way he did in that Monte Carlo match. But I was commentating, and a a winner went flashing past him, and they're just about to start the next one, and he goes to the umpire, "I want to replay that." And then (laughs) and then she she says, "Well, it's in," and uh, you know we all know it's. And he goes, "Yeah, but there was one time when when I when I saw that, and it was actually you know showed it, and it was not what you thought." (laughs) So I'd like to replay it, please. And so they they start trying to get the machine working, and I think they'd moved on to the next point, so the machine was unable to do it. And then we had (laughs) quite a delay. Whilst uh, whilst all that, and you could see Zverev down the other end of the court getting more and more wound up by this, and also clearly thinking, I, I'm, I really, I'm not, I mustn't get wound. I'm getting wound up. I'm getting wound up. It was, um, it, and you knew that Medvedev had got a chance. His game was starting to find its range, and he was getting in the guy's head. And uh, same as usual. Gilles Savara, uh, coach of Daniel Medvedev. Give that man a pay rise, by the way. Dave and I I found ourselves accidentally in a Gilles Savara press conference tonight because... um, What a lovely guy. Yeah, great guy. We we stuck around after the match to go to the press conferences. We felt like it was uh, important, even though it was uh, the the middle of the night. It was about one o'clock in the morning by that point. Um, And up on the WhatsApp group pops, uh, Alexander Zverev, 12.45, Daniel Medvedev, 1am. Fine. Then up pops Gilles Savara will be coming in for press at one fifteen a.m. <laughs> Give that man a medal, um, and uh, it ended up being that he essentially switched places with uh, Medvedev. He was like the warm up act for his for his <laughs> guy. Uh, so so we were in that press conference. We got to fire some questions at him, and it, he was he was fantastic. What a character he is. Um, and he described tonight as the number one crazy match that he's watched of Daniil's, which given that he's watched all, I think, <laughs> of Daniel Medvedev's matches, uh, that tells you a lot, I think. But he was clearly so proud of him and Medvedev was so proud of himself the way he he dug in and just wouldn't let it go, Would, wouldn't let himself leave that court without finding some kind of way to win. And that's that's him all over that's right up his alley isn't it he's a he's a problem solver he's he's the ultimate problem solver really in in on the ATP just now and I I I think he'd like to have more in the tank going into the final but I also think this is probably his favorite way to win a tennis match I, I get the feeling that beating a guy who in his own words we're not friends uh, from two sets to love down is his preferred variety of tennis match. And uh, the celebration probably bears a mention. Yes, because it appears that he turns to Gilles Savard and all of his team and shushes. I, I initially thought he's, he's rowing with somebody who's got in his head and, uh, and was barracking, barracking him and he's shushing them at the end. That's what I thought was happening when I was watching out the commentary box window. That's not what was happening. He, he was turning to his own team and he was shushing and then he was shouting karma towards them. And I must admit, I didn't really put two and two together until 
I saw an image on Twitter of an image from the Netflix documentary where Alexander Zverev, I think, said, I, be- I believe in karma. And the gist of that being Medvedev will get what's coming to him because of the way he behaves. And listen, I tried to get Medvedev on, on that subject at the start of the tournament, if you remember. What do you think of the depiction of you and Zverev in that Netflix documentary? And he, he, he was determined not to fall into the trap. He's a new man. He's a new res- resolution. I'm not going to get He's involved in these things. He's breathing exercises in the Maldives, David. He's yep. a new man. He told Catherine all about his breathing exercises and, and he think, thinks it's starting to stick. So he, you know, But it was very clear that he, he, he thought that was all a load of bullshit for, in, in the Netflix documentary. And, and actually, it, it does wind him up. But he wasn't going to say that to anybody. And, and my sense was, and I think everybody's sense was watching it, having thought about that, is this is his way of chucking it back at Zverev as, as gleefully as possible uh, towards his own team. And, and I decided I would ask him about that um, in the press conference. And, and again, he was desperately trying not to bite and trying not mm. to... He, he hasn't watched the Netflix episode and he wasn't saying karma. That's his story and he's sticking to it. <laughs> and we take him at his word officially on the record here on the podcast. The thing is, everyone on the internet these days is a, is a professional lip reader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, I've looked on Twitter, I've seen what people on Twitter are saying. And, and I thought, oh no, oh no. <laughs> yeah, how can they possibly have thought that I was saying that? Um, other, I mean, there's so many notable moments in this, weren't there? But we should touch upon the five oh. all accidental drop shot return <laughs> in the fourth set tie-break. Would professional commentator David Law like to describe what happened there? Well, I mean, I described it because I was doing that that rally um, and I'd done the one before where where the same w- was the situation. You know, Zverev's in charge at this point. He's got two points to finish it. Because Medvedev had double-faulted, hadn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's at, it. So um, he's 5-4 up. Which gave Zverev two serves to win the match. Yeah, he's 5-4 up and he played... Honestly, he played the most passive point on the next point. And Pat Cash, who has been in our commentary box, had been saying all match long, Zverev's got to go and get it. He's not, he's not just going to get given it by Medvedev. And I think with Medvedev in particular, that's the case. He's going to make you play these balls. You've got this huge game. Just go and get it. And if you think back to his, his US Open final, the same thing happened. When, when it really mattered, he, he went into his shell, he, went into, he reverted to type, I suppose, and he stayed at the back. Because, I mean, look, he, he, he was by far the better player for the first two sets in this match. Um, and Medvedev was poor. But, you know, he played defensively, really, conservatively, and, and he paid for it. And then the, but then you've still got one more left. <laughs> I mean, it, is, it was bizarre to watch. He hits the big serve. Medvedev, in his own words, basically shanks it, and it's a drop shot winner. And you've got Zverev flailing towards it. I mean, you know, Medvedev, I think, didn't know quite whether to laugh or celebrate or what. But that turned the the entire match in that moment. Yeah, and they both, you know, Medvedev says it was luck, wasn't he? he? He says it with a delicious smile on his face, but he's like, yeah, uh, better better to be lucky than good, right? It was luck and I'll damn well take it. And and the thing is, when you fight that hard, sometimes you get lucky as well, mm. you know? Mm. But if you don't fight hard, you wouldn't get that chance. Fortune favours the brave. Mm. <sighs> what a night. <laughs> <laughs> what a day. What a day. It has been... Has been absolutely extraordinary. One other thing that did occur to me watching the first two sets, which it felt like it was being played in slow motion, because Medvedev was way further back in the court than he had been for any of his other matches. That was measured, and it 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 came after the Sinner Djokovic match, where you got this explosive toe to toe showdown. And suddenly you've got these two guys just refusing to miss a ball. There was one 51-stroke rally. And Medvedev was 
trying to bait Zverev with these half-paced rolled balls up to his forehand. Go on, miss one. Go on, Alexander. Miss it. And and I found it quite boring, to be honest, for the first couple of sets. Oh, yeah, that was not that was not sexy tennis, was no. it, at all? Um, but that's that's... I also love that about the sport, that you, you've got two finalists who've just got there in totally different ways. I mean, Medvedev's, what, he spent 20 hours on the court to get to the final? And, and two finalists, neither of whom played a warm-up tournament. That was a yeah. topic of discussion, wasn't it, for us? Um, coming in, you know, seeing how that would how that would play out. Now, you've also got Alcaraz, who didn't play a lead-up tournament, and we think potentially... Possibly that might have been a mistake. Only time will tell. But equally, we have two men's finalists who who didn't either. And I thought Gilles Savaro was quite interesting on that subject because he, he said that he felt like if Medvedev had played a warm-up tournament, he might have been a bit sharper at this Australian Open and therefore not had the long matches that he's had to endure. And yet at the same time, the fact that he is fresh, sort of mentally, is is helping Medvedev here for sure. Like he is, he's not getting distracted on court in the way that he was at the back end of last season when he was tired and he was letting things affect him. Okay. He's, he's getting involved in some long physical grueling matches, but you know, we've seen the way he's managed to turn them around. His focus is there. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's sort of pros and cons to all of it. And, but it, it, it did strike me that Medvedev will probably play warm-up tournaments to the Australian Open in the future again like I don't think just because he's reached the final here it's now this is my policy like I, I, I do think it was all very tied to wanting to have a longer off-season and a holiday with, with all his breathing exercises but he says it's the first holiday he's been able to take in four years mm. in an off-season um, and it's it's changed him as a person <laughs> he does seem Really, I mean, like it's it's funny what he did again today, and it's funny how he tried to talk his way out of it. When honestly, I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> um, but I, I I'm amused that he really seems to be quite quite serious about trying to not get involved quite so much and lose energy in matches. And I, I think that's what it is, isn't it? Mm. He he feels the way he feels about things and he'll channel them in certain ways on the court. I think he, you know, he, he understands himself incredibly well and understands that that can be a, a fuel to him, but he also recognizes there's ways he can save energy while still very much being himself. And that is to, to not stoke the fires, I think in, uh, in additional ways. And I, I get that. I respect it. I would have absolutely loved it if he'd come in and said, yeah, I was saying karma. <laughs> Here's why. And just do a little chorus of Taylor Swift karma. Um, obviously, that would have been brilliant. But equally, I, I, you know, I totally get it. But yeah, we we believe you, Daniil. We believe you. So that'll be the men's final in a couple of days' time. Daniel Medvedev against Yannick Sinner. Yannick Sinner with the... The physical advantage, surely, but Daniel Medvedev with the experience advantage. He talked today about how he felt, you know, ahead of playing his first Grand Slam final. And Coco Goff talked about it, didn't she, in relation to, you know, how do you beat Sabalenka? And rather than talking about the specifics of it being Sabalenka, she talked about how difficult it's going to be for Jung to be playing her first Grand Slam final. She was like, oh, I remember how I felt and... No matter how hard I tried to tell myself to relax, like it's your first Grand Slam final, you're you're shitting it. <laughs> um, so I I do find that interesting because take away the first Grand Slam final dynamic, and I'm probably giving the edge to to Yannick Sinner, but because because he's playing far far better tennis, isn't he? I mean, the, interesting what Medvedev said today about. He's he's reached three finals here and three in New York. Obviously, he's he's won one of those in New York, but broadly, similarly successful uh, events for him. He is a hardcore specialist, after all. Um, but he said that he's never felt in the zone here like he has on numerous occasions in New York. He's never had that feeling of, well, whatever I do, it's going to go in. I'm just feeling it. The ball's a football. I'm I'm in a purple patch. It's felt like 
he's always had to win differently here. It's always been a struggle. I found that I found that very interesting. Yeah, it, it, and the same contrast with how Djokovic has always felt so comfortable on this court and. Oh yes, he's won the U.S. Open, but the the comparison is stark. I did. Uh, I do wonder whether that final of two years ago is part of that as well. You know, that's left. Mm. That will have left a mark, um, and he probably needs to win the thing to to get past that. Yeah, it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, this is this will be his first Grand Slam final against someone other than Nadal or or Djokovic, won't it? But you know it's it's post puke sinner like it's it's not easy, and I just find experience such an interesting thing. Like we talk about experience a lot, but how do you actually use that experience? I, I think that's you almost need experience of using experience in a way. Mm-hmm. I think and and sort of it, it, it'll be Medvedev's first time having the edge there, but. Will he, will he actually be able to use it given the physical state he's in, given the level that Sinner's playing? I don't know. Like, I think I do give the edge to Sinner in this, in this final. Um, but I suppose, the good, I suppose the good thing for Medvedev is that he's never won the Australian Open before, which means that he can win it. <laughs> because, you know, as we know, he, go, he goes from town to town winning, winning different, uh, different tournaments. And it would be so annoying if he broke that broke that record because it is a fun fun record in sport I'll have 24 hours to have a I want to think about their matchups a a bit before I really decide who I think will win personally but Pat Cash reckons that Yannick Sinner when we were in the middle of this match he said Yannick Sinner will beat either of these two in straight sets you know it's just they won't live with him matchups though like of course Yannick Sinner looked the far better tennis player of the two today. But <sighs> Medvedev makes you play badly. <laughs> makes other people play badly. I, I don't know. I don't know. You'll have a plan. Of course. He is a man with a plan always. Just quickly on Alexander Zverev, that's that's pretty much the, the two biggest matches of his life now that he's lost from two sets to love up. Does he have a problem? Um... Yeah, I would say I would say he does because the, the way he just to me the way he just contracts and goes into his shell when actually he needs to be hitting out and going and grabbing the final the title you 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 don't want to be leaving that out there for somebody else to decide whether you win or not that's that's kind of what it feels like to me he he was saying that he've he wasn't wasn't feeling well, and he's been under the weather, and he's got a fever and all this sort of thing, and he, he running out of gas. I mean, he's another one who's played a hell of a lot of tennis, um, but I think that he should have probably have regrets about. Yes, he was unlucky with the drop shot return winner, but the the one before you just you just didn't go for it, and there were too many instances like that. Yeah, I think. We've seen him retreat, haven't we, in, 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 in sort of these big moments. And, and, those, and those two tournaments we're talking about there, you know, that was, a, that was a US Open where obviously Djokovic was out of the equation because he got himself disqualified. And this was an Australian Open where Djokovic has lost in the, in the semi-final before. Like I know Medvedev and Sinner and team at the time, like these are, these are great players. But it, it's been two chances where he's not had to not had to go through Nadal and Djokovic, which so many players of his era have had to go through. He's had a couple of chances there to win majors without that, and, and he hasn't been able to take it. Um, so yeah, I think I think in big matches he, he does have a little bit of a of an issue in terms of the how how passive his tennis gets. Mm. You just I just don't think you can win top-level tennis events against these players being passive. Mm. I just don't think you can. They're too good. They'll they'll take it from you. Mm. Okay, well, everyone's buying some time before they nail their colours to the mast in terms of the men's final. We're going to have a quick chat about the women's final tomorrow in a moment. First of all, a few other results for you from today. Some very interesting ones. Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reid won two matches in a day today to lift the men's wheelchair doubles title. They beat Takuya Miki and Takeda Oda. 
in the final, who also played twice today because uh, of the rain yesterday. There was a lot of catch-up taking place. Uh, Hewitt and Reed's fifth consecutive Australian Open men's doubles title. Uh, if you think that's impressive, hold on to your hats, folks. Uh, it was also double duty in the women's wheelchair doubles. The final was won by Dida de Hutt and Yiska Griffin. They beat uh, Kugatso Montiagne and Yui Kamiji, the top seeds. This is de Hutt's fourth Australian Open title in a row. Her first with Griffin. Her previous titles were with Anika Van Koot. Uh, it's her 18th major doubles title and um, she'll be going for a 14th major singles title tomorrow. She faces Yui Kamiji. Now it's Griffin's sixth major doubles title. The first came all the way back in 2006 alongside Esther Vergeer. Mm. She retired in 2017 and decided to come back in 2020. There was nothing else to do. Uh, she said, uh, I retired 2017, decided to come back in 2020, but my main focus was the Grand Slams. Well, I would say, Yiska, it's gone very well. <laughs> uh, it was also double duty for the quad wheelchair doubles finalist today. That title was won by Andy Lapthorne, the Brit and his American partner, David Wagner. They beat Donald Rampardi and Guy Sasson in the final. A thrilling match, by all accounts, this one won in a deciding tie-break. This is Wagner and Lapthorne's fifth Australian Open doubles title, exactly 10 years after their first. So I make that 50% of titles won together in the last 10 years. And, and I, I believe Wagner is the only number one in in tennis to have been older as number one than Rohan Bapan is going to be. <laughs> wow. What a record to hold. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that makes sense because Wagner, he spoke today, this is from a piece on the Australian Open website and app. He competed in the first ever quad wheelchair event at the Australian Open in 2008. Mm. Um, and he, he talks a lot in the piece about how much he's seen it develop and how much he's seen interest develop. He said it's not they don't just come out to support the Aussies in the wheelchair events, they support the event, um, and he's seen that really grow and go from strength to strength over the last, oh, maths, 16 years. <laughs> so um, that's great to see, and uh, well done to him. Suwei Shea is halfway to the doubles-double. She won the mixed title today with Jan Zielinski over Neil Skubski and Desiree Kravchik, who had led by a set and a break in this one before losing in the deciding tie break. I mean, obviously, Shea is potentially unbeatable, David, but this pretended, this possibly got away from, from Kravchik and Skubski. It was on their racket. Yeah, it was 7-6-4-2. They had a... I think three break points in the next game and they didn't take them. And then they had a championship point as well in the match tie break. Um, I mean, listen, it happens, but they lost four games in a row there in that second set and that that's going to sting. Mm, tough one. Uh, so Shay has won the mix. She'll go for the women's doubles title as well on Sunday alongside Elisa Mertens. They will face uh, Ludmilla Kitchenock and Yelena Ostapenko who beat Gabby Dabrowski and Erin Routcliffe in Routliff in straight sets today. Uh, so that's the women's doubles title on Sunday. Women's singles final tomorrow. Zhang, Sabalenka. I won't ask you what's going to happen because I think everybody... Well, I've asked Matt where everyone's going for the, in the predictions and he, he can't sell anyone on anything other than Sabalenka in two. Which which is the obvious pick. You know, if I'm an odds compiler, I'm saying that's the, the heavy favourite in terms of outcomes. But can anyone make a case that it's not going to be that? I think Zhang would need to settle really quickly and keep it close. She's. I don't see a hit in Sabalenka off the court. Uh, the way she, she so often dominates players, but... Sabalenka dominates everybody. So only if she keeps it close and wins big points, it's a big ask. 
Yeah, that analysis worries me because that Jung's game is hitting people off the court. Um, not that I mean, she's a good mover, an incredible athlete. She can do that, but it's not her game. She's not Coco Goff in terms of her in terms of her defenses. She is a she's a Sabalenka with a bit more topspin, bit bit biggest bigger swings you know it's not identical she does have the ability to put that real shape on the ball that that goff goff can do and did cause sabalenka a bit of trouble yesterday i'd like to see her her do that but ultimately she's a hitter mm. and it's hard to see anybody beat sabalenka at hitting right wonder if, now wonder if periba will be a factor in any way in terms of the preparation given well, Pam thinks so, didn't she? Pam mm. was saying that last night that she thinks you know that's that's a good thing for Jung Shim Wen to have in her corner. I just think this match is on Sabalenka's racket, as as most matches are, and I think the nerves could be could be tough for Jung Shim Wen. You know, against like you know, if Sabalenka comes out playing as she has done all tournament could be three love in 10 minutes and then you know how do you settle from there that's that's i suppose one of my big questions about this final as david says if jung Wen can keep this close then it gets interesting but nerves and the sabalenka just powerhouse that she is make make her a big favorite i think plus plus her experience of course and look she played a brilliant final in the australian open final last year sabalenka hmm She's got very good memories from if, that. If she wins the title, do you think every WTA player forevermore is going to be requesting a red dress? <laughs> that's that's the winning theme, isn't it? <laughs> okay, well, we'll find out tomorrow. We'll be back, of course, with a podcast after the women's final and everything else that happens tomorrow, looking ahead to the men's final. Uh, we will have all our mascots in tow. Usher, Usher's on our Instagram at the moment, along with tremendous other content, though I say so myself. Today ha- hath giveth in the content department. So hello to Usher. We have our mascots. David has Francis. I've got Darwin, Hyder, and Soma for Matt. Did anyone get points? Nope. 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 Okay. Shame. Lots of people did, just not us. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Billy Jean is sponsored by Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have, of course, our top folks and executive producers, Greg, Chris, Jamie and Jeff. And Matt, we have shout outs. We have Sarah Lewis in Kent. All right, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Like Chris Lewis. Yes. Very good. That's a person, isn't the it? The 1983 Wimbledon runner-up to John McEnroe. Yes, the yep. most one-sided. Didn't we deem that the worst Grand Slam final ever? Certainly on the shortlist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Sarah's, Sarah, a couple of British uh, suggestions from, from the 80s. Uh, Sarah Loosemore and Sarah Goma. Haven't heard of either of those. <laughs> There's lots of people out there who have, I'm sure. Is this a Sarah with an H? It is. So we can't go Sarah Cerebus at all, Mo. Sarah Borwell. <laughs> We're doing a lot of Brits here, aren't we? <laughs> that was huge, <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you very much. Sue Humphrey is our next shout-out. All right, Sue. Hello, Sue. Sue is in Vancouver. Oh, former home of the Labour Cup last year and very much on my to-visit list, particularly after the last series of Race Across the World. Oh, yeah, the, 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 me too. Yeah. One big advert for Canada, that, Very successful it? advert for <laughs> Canada, Oh, I yeah. loved that show. Sue started following tennis in 2014 when Jeannie Bouchard had her runs wow. at the Grand Slams. Halcyon days for Canadian tennis. Um, ten years ago. David was David. David was deep diving. David deep dived on Jeannie Bouchard the other night. (laughs) Yeah, I was uh, looking up her run and wondering where it all went wrong. Pickleballs potentially, David. Sue Barker. Oh, very good. Do we have a Humphrey? No. 
Bogart. <laughs> Bogart, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sue. <laughs> and finally, we have Ali Rowe in New Zealand. Right, Wellington. Ali. Lovely. Like Ali Risk. Yes. Kind of. Yes. Ali Bruce Ball. Uh, a BBC commentator who is a colleague of mine and who has covered tennis. Absolutely. Very good, Catherine. What do we know about Ali? An avid listener since 2016. And she says that the podcast is essential listening, particularly as she's not in the best time zone for watching live tennis. Ah, yes. I can understand that. Unless the Auckland event is on, in which case, bonanza. <laughs> Uh, but yes, I get that, Ali. Um, I it, I mean, talk about to visit list. New Zealand has been top of my to visit list for ever so long. But it just feels like you've got to do it properly, New Zealand, right? You need to do it justice. So I will go one day and it will be excellent. Uh, and I've heard wonderful things about Wellington. So thank you, Ali. Thank you to all of our friends of the Tennis Podcast Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to On Location. Who else can we thank? Daniel Medvedev for for bringing the karma vibes and then lying about it in a press conference afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate you all for listening. Please do so again tomorrow. We'll be back then. Good night. 